the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. With me is Michael Spinks, co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in London, and we're going to talk about the recent Australian election, but not from the angles that you might expect. We're going to talk about natural resources, climate change, and why it's so important to 91. What prompted you, Michael? Welcome, by the way. What prompted you to write this piece? What was the motivation? Well, you're absolutely right. I think we've been particularly interested in climate policy in um, Australia and more broadly, because you're typically the central focus for investors in in sovereign government bonds is the financial status of the nation, you know, the, the economic policy and progress. And over time, I think what we've seen is that the positive and negative factors across a wide range of environmental, social, human factors are being increasingly valued and priced by the market. And that has implications for assessing that long-term financial capital and financial sustainability of a sovereign. So particularly in, you know, when we look at our sustainable multi-asset strategies, we use a capitals-based framework to understand the future value implications of how financial capital of a nation interacts with its natural capital, social capital, human capital. And I think the notion of capital is really important because it confers value. Um, and, and even if, for example, you know, natural capital, a country's stock of natural assets, it's soil, air, water, all living things, even if we know it's difficult to price, we do obviously know it has value and, and it's essential for long term growth. I'm going to read you one of the sentences from your piece and then you can explain natural capital for people that are not familiar with it, because it says here you can explain why understanding climate at the national level is increasingly important for sovereign bond investors generally and why investors need to look beyond climate to think about how our country is managing its natural capital more generally. So when I think of natural capital, I think of what they dig out of the ground, what they've been blessed with below the surface, maybe what they've got above the surface as well, and why they're so good at tourism and that sort of thing. But maybe you could explain in more succinct terms what natural capital is. I mean, that, that is very much the starting point. It's how you look after it. But it includes, you know, what we terms of ecosystem services. So these are uh, the pollination of bees, for example, it is biomes around coastal areas. It is everything, literally all living things around in the air, in the soil, in the water, and how that gets looked after. So we think about uh, biodiversity. We think about how we look after that biodiversity through impacts such as deforestation, for example. We think about the physical risks towards natural capital. So be they in the atmosphere, be they through water, through agriculture. And, and our purpose for doing that is to understand uh, the physical risks to the nation and how they're looking after it. Because, um, I mean, it's a particular case for low-income countries, but also for high-income countries like Australia, how they look after that natural capital and how their policies impact emission reduction, for example, um, it has got sort of two, two main impacts. I think, first of all, we think that investors are going to become much more in tune towards progressive climate policy and ambitious commitments mm. uh, and, and want to see demonstrable progress. But the second factor is also that the, the natural capital risk can be a source of economic and financial risk if it's not properly addressed. Physical transition risk can reduce the, the structural growth rate of an economy. If the nature isn't there, then you know the country operates at a, at a lower level of growth. And, and the financial market response to that may also be nonlinear. So you could just see sudden 
you know, stops of capital for countries at risk if, if there isn't positive action. Australia is a fantastic example, um, and we have to use an example in order to illustrate the points that you make in your piece. I mean, Australia's been unbelievable over the last few years. It's raging, debilitating for the country, uh, droughts and, and, and fires and millions and millions of animals uh, being wiped out. And now, uh, well, in the last six months or so, these floods, it's all up and down is what I'm saying. The climate in Australia is all over the place and also all over the place. Well, not so much is the political situation because there's a Labour government suddenly been elected after 10 years of being absent. And that is quite important, I believe, because all the speeches I saw from the new leader, he talks about climate quite a lot, which the previous one didn't. Absolutely. I mean, I think first, if we touch on, as you say, the, the, the current situation, I mean, Australia... When we look across the world and we, you know, we look quantitatively at about 150 countries, we look on a qualitative basis at about 80 countries to, to review their policies and their natural capital and social capital profile. And when we think about Australia, it is closer to an emerging market than it is to a developed market purely from a natural capital perspective. So, you know, it's clearly a triple A rated sovereign bond, but it's closer to triple C when you think about it, its climate risk. Um, so and, and that comes from its very high reliance on, on fossil fuels from both power and economic growth. It's a very carbon intensive economy. It's the world's largest coal exporter by energy content. It's the second largest liquid natural gas exporter. And that actually does you know, that brings in an awful lot of money. It brings in one hundred and thirty billion dollars, 10 percent of GDP every year. So it, but it has been slow to address what you as you point out, these very stark natural capital, natural hazards, natural risks that are occurring. We think the policies have been very slow to address that, or they've been focused in quite niche areas like solar, but solar on, on people's homes, which is quite inefficient from a power generation perspective, and also benefits the wealthy the most, because they're the ones who can afford it. They're the ones with the large roof space. So we haven't seen the sort of, you know, we've we've had in Australia for many years the climate wars, I think it's been called a lot across the political spectrum. We've finally saw a net zero policy or a net zero pledge come out last year from, from the previous administration, but we haven't really seen any policies come through with that. So you've got a nation that that is also a, a deforestation hotspot. Um, and, and which, you know, surprisingly, really, it's, a, it's the only country highlighted by institutions like the World Resources Institute, the Global Forest Watch's deforestation hotspot, uh, the WWF called Eastern Australia the most, you know, highlighted it alongside some of the most infamous places in the world for, for forest destruction. There's a lot of issues, but I'm, I think you're right. We've had issues with it. I think it's right to be encouraged from a, from a climate perspective with some of the changes. Well, let's hope the words turn into deeds. But just tell me something before I ask you. I, actually, there's two parts to this question. First of all, is investing in Australia, and particularly Australian sovereign debt, a part of your strategy at 91? And if so, how has the new government, the new regime, if you like, uh, changed the outlook for sovereign debt from your point of view at 91? It's still, I mean, as we say, as we talk now, it's just a few days after the, the election results. And as you point out, it's relatively early days. So the Labour Party that is coming in, I have, you know, the final results have, have yet to sort of really come in. But they've proposed, for example, a more aggressive emissions target. It's still not world leading. We'd sort of like to see more, but it really does depend upon the final shape of the lower and the upper house. I think there's a really interesting factor coming through the election in terms of the rise of the teal independence, you know, all women who've come through and ran, ran on a strong climate platform. So when we think about the sovereign debt 
from the chain, likely change in climate policy. I think we're going to be assessing those climate policies as we come out. But we would see it as having reduced long-term financial risk, whereas we saw some of the previous climate policies as actually being representing quite high risk that wasn't necessarily priced by the market. But we could see that as being a, a potential uh, factor likely to come into the overall risk premium for something like an Australian government bond, as I mentioned, is is very highly rated, so tends to trade closer to to US, U.S. Treasury. But we would we would suggest that it might diverge from that unless these climate issues are are addressed. Australia is a slightly extreme example because of the nature of the country and the nature of its economy and its natural capital and resource-based economy, which is what it is. I mean, similar to South Africa, but in so many dissimilar ways, if I can put it that way. You say at the end, you say Australia is an extreme example in some ways, but this type of analysis can be applied across countries and actually across asset classes. It also extends beyond natural capital to other so-called capital, social capital, human capital and financial capital. Again, if you could tell us how important this is to 91 in the big picture and looking forward, not just the next few months, but the next few years and beyond. Of course. I mean, I think so the those social capital, human capital, natural capital and the interaction with financials is how we think about our sustainable equity, sustainable multi-asset strategies and really trying to value those factors and put them alongside financial capital. So we think that's likely to be increasingly important. It can be applied on a, on a cross-asset basis. We apply it to our equity research, for example, and we apply it across the fixed income space because we think that these factors are likely to become increasingly important. So for us, it's been a really helpful framework to really understand how those different forces interact. I think materiality is really important in any assessment of sustainability, which is why when we look at, say, sovereign bonds in developed markets, we'd say that most of them have achieved the more socially orientated sustainable development goals many years ago. So we'll focus more on natural capital. When we turn it to emerging markets, clearly social capital becomes a much more important factor and human capital so things like health and education they become very important factors in terms of the development of those economies and from a company perspective as well i think how human capital how employees are looked after the culture of the business and social capital so factors like diversity and inclusion they're becoming much more important factors in really driving long-term value creation for for companies and obviously those those companies operate within countries you know we put the, the whole thing together in managing the strategy to really think about both the top-down country factor and the bottom-up uh, company factor. Michael, thanks so much for your insight. That's Michael Spinks, co-head of Multi-Asset Growth at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.